Let me just, uh, okay, I get the thing recording. So thanks everyone on a few accounts. First of all, um, I'm just very grateful to all of you for the, the very kind words and assurances and prayers and everything in the wake of uh, my dad's passing. You know, obviously it's been a difficult time, but but even though you know, you know the emails and the and the hearing from all of you did was very helpful and knowing that you know many people are praying is is tremendously helpful. So, uh, you know, for me, but also for my family, for my mom, my brothers and sisters, certainly we're we're very very grateful. Um, and I'm thankful that, that you all uh, have been so generous and kind with your with your words and your prayers. Um, and then the other thing is, is I, I mean, I, you know, I don't have an explanation. I'm, I mean, a, a clear one, at least in my mind. I'm glad that most of us are here today. Sorry about the confusion around May 6th on Thursday. Um, I have to admit that I, I don't remember who, whose email it was first, where, which was like asking, are we really having class on Thursday or are we having it Monday? Uh, I was like, I have no idea what this email means, um, and I was so confused. And then after I got like two or three more, I was like, I think I did something wrong here. And sure enough, um, I mean, I, I don't know whether I was, I don't know what I was doing, but anyway, I'm glad that um, it seems like most of you obviously were able to to, uh, to be here for tonight. So so thanks for, for bearing with me and being flexible. Yeah, we get um, it. We get it. No worries. Thank you, thank you. Um, as I indicated in in one of my emails, you know, I, I just to give you a little insight into where I'm sort of coming from at this point in the class. Obviously, we were supposed to have, um, you know, today we were supposed to do the final exam, um, and between missing the last two weeks and and then the other class that we had missed towards the beginning of the semester due to Father O'Reilly's passing. I mean, I, I feel, um, you know, somewhat bad in the sense that I, I really enjoy being able to bring the story of church history somewhere into at least the recognizably modern era, even if it's not, you know, all the way to post-Vatican II Catholicism or something, certainly into, you know, what we would what we would acknowledge as the modern era, the French Revolution and its aftermath into the 19th century, and um, you know, obviously we we are not going to reach that point in in the sort of um, thorough, systematic way that we've been proceeding through the courses, just because we haven't had a um, class time. So, what I'm uh, intending to do today. And I don't know how this will fit in because with our, you know, when we usually take a break or whatever, it, it, because the first half kind of depends on, on you all. Um, so I'm hoping that we can move, you know, I want to move us through again, the material that, um, you know, I sent those links to the audio files for, um, and just kind of look at look at the uh at the outline and, and maybe i'll highlight a few things just for a point of emphasis but primarily just to give you all an opportunity to ask any questions or um if there was something that wasn't clear um so i i didn't hear any uh, I, I mean i didn't hear from any of you that there was a um 
an issue with the file. So I'm hoping that you were able to listen to at least some of some of them, even if maybe you haven't get through all. They were they were fine. They were all they were all fine. I mean, I listened to all of them. They were good. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so again, I don't want to leave that the, that material un unquestioned. Um, you know, if something wasn't clear or whatever, I, I want to go sort of through each of the the major topics and just give you an opportunity to ask any questions. And and it's it's fine. You know, again, as much or as little as, as we need to get into any of this stuff is fine with me. And then in the in the once we're through that, kind of through the Reformation. Um, honestly, I'm, I'm going to talk more uh, in, a, in a more sort of high-level way of the sort of aftermath of the Reformation, the Catholic response, um, and, and then just, you know, again, without going into the level of detail that we've taken as our approach in this course, you know, cover as much ground as possible to, to shed some light on the, um, you know, on the post-Reformation era church because there are, you know, a number of important developments and, and I would, I would uh, want for you to come out of a church history course with at least a, you know, like we've been drawing the, the map of the, the territory, if, if you can, you know, follow me on this metaphor. Uh, we've, been, we've been sketching out the map uh, of you know, the, the unfolding the development of the church and like the latter quarter is like kind of blank. And so I'd at least like to at least put some of the outlines in place um, you know, the Vidmar, I actually was looking through the, you know, the latter chapters in Vidmar. And, and I mean, he, as usual, I think covers things pretty well. So, um, you know, for your own benefit, you know, things I can't talk about in detail, I, you know, I'm fairly confident that Vidmar can follow up with um, some additional information. So that's, that's kind of my plan of, uh, of action for today. And then um and and tomorrow i'll plan to send you what will be like the kind of take home final um which will be it won't be exactly like the midterm but it will be patterned after a kind of um selection of a, of a couple questions that i wouldn't say will be full essays but give you a chance to bring bring together you know some of the the things we've learned in this in this class specifically well, I'm going to set it up in a way that it's not going to rely too heavily, basically, on the material that we only, you know, presented via the audio lectures. And then the, the things I talk about today, um, I may give you the option if it's something that, you know, you've read about in Vidmar and, you know, you feel comfortable in, in listening, you know, to, to address some of those those items. But you, it won't be something you're required to um you know, to answer in order to complete the exam, because I, I just don't feel like it's um, sort of a fair, a, a fair expectation, because again, it, it's going to be covered in a, in a more superficial way um, this evening. So that's my uh, thinking. And as I say, the first half, we'll just sort of see based on on the questions that that you have. So um, does that sound good? Any questions about the plan for the next two hours or so? Can I ask one other question? Please. Well, whatever, what happened with the midterm? Because according to what I'm looking at, it doesn't show up. Yeah. I just want my biggest fear is you didn't get it or something. <laughs> no, yeah, I, yeah, so this was the other, um, 
thing I realized, I think last Friday or Thursday when I was um, trying to like make sure that things were, were posted and then, you know, I'm really having a, a good time with this, uh, with the administrative angle on the course, as you can tell from the Thursday and the sixth thing. There are two ways to enter grades, at least two ways, I guess, in, in Populi. One is on like a, a points-based system and, and then one is on like a hundred point scale system. And um, I got them screwed up. And so basically what, what your midterm was, uh, what is it, 30% or 25% of your grade, whatever it is, I have numbers like on a sheet that are out of that, out of let's say 25. So like somebody did well, they got a 23 out of 25. But when I set the grade book up, <laughs> I set it up for the other method. And so Rob, for example, it would look like when I was about to post, I was double checking and it would look like basically everyone in the class was had failed the midterm with some score in the twenties. And I thought I better not do that and then try and explain it after the fact. So um, as soon as I can this week, I mean, I've been away, frankly, since until yesterday, uh, we got back last night. And so um, as soon as I can this week, I'll be posting, uh, you know, all the scores from the midterm and then and then the, the book reviews as well. I think there may be a couple of you who sent me in the past week, um, your book review. And I'm, I may not have acknowledged each and every one. So I, I, for the midterms and most of the book reviews up till let's say two weeks ago, if you received an acknowledgement from me, like God, thanks, then be assured that it's received and graded. Again, there were a couple that I, I just remember seeing like and not having an opportunity to receive. So oh, to follow up on that, if you haven't heard from me and you've sent it, uh, please don't hesitate to me again and just say hey did you get this but but like in your case rob or for many of you you know i i absolutely have in fact i don't think no everyone has a midterm score um so there's not a question of not of not getting it it was a question of the the posting format so sorry about that i got you in the last two weeks so you should have it It'll just be in the system somewhere yeah like i say i'll um I'll be going back through, I mean, and, and, and just even acknowledge, like the quick note to acknowledge receipt, like you'll get from me. Um, and that's the problem. Okay, if for any reason you don't have mine, please let me know and I'll send you another copy of it. Yeah, right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for every, everyone. Thanks for your um, forbearance, too. It's certainly not my custom to not have the midterm grades posted um, by the last class. I mean, there are no no red flags or warning. I mean, I, I you know I'm not worried about any of your your um, grades. I mean, I thought overall everyone did very well. Um, I know it's nice to see the grade and know exactly where you stand. So, like I say, in the next few days, I hope to have that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'll um, be happy to answer any questions you have once those are posted. But I think you know, I think everything will be in good order for too long. Let's go. So, where we left off at our last in-person class was um, actually on on the cusp of the Crusades, believe it or not. And um, 
Sorry, that I'm, I'm going to be looking down a lot tonight because I have my computer is like right below this other computer that I'm talking into. And I have about eight different files open with all my notes from the different lectures because I know we're going to try and, you know, get through a lot of stuff. So if you, if you notice, I'm looking down a lot more than is typical. That's why. Um, so we were in the sort of late Middle Ages outline um, and... And, and had kind of resolved, resolved the investiture controversy and, and was, we were just sort of setting up the Crusades. Now, um, I, none of the audio files talked about the Crusades. And again, in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into details except to say that the ones that are particularly noteworthy um, would be the, the first Crusade in, in 1096 and the Fourth Crusade, which began in, in 1202. And I say that because the First Crusade was the one that, that kind of enjoyed the most success, if you will, in terms of reclaiming uh, almost the entirety of the Holy Land that had been taken by, um, by Islam. And, you know, this was, um, you know, sort of like the first major attempt and, and it was basically a fairly successful one. Um, the, you know, the impact, or, or sorry, the stability of the, the reclaiming of the territory was not really built to last. It was still essentially surrounded by Islamic territories and powers that, that were very interested in, you know, in reversing those losses from their perspective. And so, you know, by the sec the time of the Second Crusade in 1147, in the intervening 50 years, sort of slowly but surely, those gains had been chipped away at, and um, and most of the territory had been lost. Now, the um, the Second and Third Crusades um, were not nearly as effective. They enjoyed either sort of modest victories or or basically nothing at all. Uh, in terms of successfully reclaiming territory. And the Fourth Crusade was kind of a disaster, never even really made it to the Holy Land. But where it did make it to, and, and I note this on the outline, was Constantinople, where sort of mercenaries that had been hired on behalf of the, of the, the, uh, or the Christian armies plundered the city of Constantinople and took a lot of its most valuable treasures. And that included, as you can imagine, number of religious items and, and, and items from the churches and so um, that that certainly soured um, as a mild way of saying it but but certainly left a very bad um, sort of memory for the Eastern Church in subsequent decades and centuries and thinking about you know 1054 was the east-west split 150 years later exactly 150 years later uh, Western Christian sort of Latin Christian armies are um, sort of stopping short of the Holy Land and instead plundering the city of Constantinople. So that was kind of a mess. Um, you know, there were later crusades, none of which, you know, was, was particularly well coordinated or, or certainly not successful. Um, and the, the something I think that I want to repeat because I think I mentioned it in at some point in our classes, and this goes to one of the themes about 
um, you know, the, there are often sort of complex explanations that lie under, um, you know, historical events, historical figures. And so um, the Crusades, in, in many ways, you can point to sort of things that appear as benefits, uh, which resulted the, the, the necessity of you know, having these armies traversing across Europe and into the Middle East really um, helped to develop new trade routes and, or, or sort of enhance some of the existing trade routes across the continent um, and is, is often seen as sort of being tied to the, um, the economic development um, in, in the, uh, you know, the 12th, 13th and 14th centuries, which are, I mean, not to overstate it, they were difficult times, but as far as trade routes and, and the developments of you know, supply chain, uh, supply lines and other things, it, it was uh, helpful in that regard. And then another major area in which it was, um, you know, it had an impact that is, you know, seemingly positive was in the sort of the cultural encounter of the Western Christians with uh, with Islam and with the sort of the, the Middle East again, um, as it were. Importantly, and and this is you know going to have tremendous impact on Catholic theology. And I believe I've said this you know, in another session. Um, it was from the Islamic scholars that that the West sort of rediscovered Aristotle. And uh, the Crusades uh, were a big part of that sort of encounter that, that helped to, um, to help to develop this rediscovery of Aristotle. And Islamic scholars, like the, the, the famous Averroes, um, um, yeah, don't, don't worry about the name, but you know, he was a great commentator on all of Aristotle's works and St. Thomas. Um, you know, acknowledged that and, and saw him as authoritative, if not definitive on everything, certainly an important, important um, figure in, in the tradition. So uh, to the extent that Aristotelian philosophy uh, will influence scholastic theology, uh, the Crusades have a lot to um, sort of have a connection with that development that, that would prove um, quite important. As I, you know, again, I think I said, and, and this is, is more of a sort of value judgment than I would typically want to give. Um, there just is always a sort of inherent um, contradiction about about religious wars, if you will, or war in the name of religion, uh, especially in the context of Christianity, which uh, obviously um, you know has a long going back to Jesus himself, but even a, apart from um, the Gospels and, and just the tradition within the church of um, nonviolence and, and peace. Um, so, again, just a few comments on the Crusades because we didn't get to them. Any questions or, or other comments about the Crusades? lectures is sort of the continued um, 
interplay between church and state in the Middle Ages, and um, and, and so that manifests itself in sort of two periods in the in the 12th century and into the 13th century with you know Frederick Barbarossa and and then two very sort of um, strong-willed popes with exalted views of papal authority, Innocent III and, and Boniface VIII. Um, you know, that was the, the one area. And then the other was that we looked at was the Avignon papacy. And um, again, hopefully it, it, it made some sense uh, in, in terms of listening as to, first of all, why, why they moved to Avignon, why the popes, um, or well, started with one, but then they stayed. Uh, Rome was a city in significant disorder. Uh, Avignon had a better location overall um, in terms of being a little bit more centrally located in Europe. And again, the, the conception of the Avignon papacy as a period of time where the French king uh, just basically controlled the popes is, is not entirely um, is not entirely accurate. Um, certainly the, the French king, uh, especially, um, you know, under specific, uh, specific reigns did exert a tremendous amount of influence. Uh, but there were differences. There were cultural differences. There were linguistic differences. And there were, you know, there were attempts by the popes in Avignon to assert themselves over and above, um, or apart from the French king. So, um, you know, Philip IV, as we, as we learned, uh, certainly wanted to really control the papacy. And, but after him, a number of the, the popes that were based in Avignon sought to, you know, cr create some autonomy. They, they purchased the, the city um, and, and, and wanted to have kind of juridical control over situation. Again, uh, there were a number of criticisms or a number of powers and, uh, you know, political powers that, that were very uneasy with this relationship or seeming relationship with the French crown. And then, of course, there was a, a, a much more fundamental uh, problem about the, the Pope being the Bishop of Rome and bishop of, of, of a given place, generally referring to the, the diocese, like the see in which the, the, the bishop resided. So how can the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome, be based in a city any, anywhere other than Rome? And so, um, again, this was a, a sort of an interesting period of about 73 years where, you know, there was an extended separation from from uh, residency in Rome, but where succession, essentially papal succession took place uh, without, you know, without really much great controversy or, or challenge. So um, that, that puts us on the doorstep, if you will, of the great schism and conciliarism. So I, before we get to that, I do want to stop and, and ask, um, any questions about, you know, this ongoing struggle, uh, Innocent III and Boniface VIII with their exalted views of, of papal authority, or about the, the Avignon papacy? 
Nope. By the way, as as we go through, because again, there's going to be a couple more of these. I'll give some brief comments and then and then stop and see if you have questions. If you think of something and we've already gone past it, uh, don't hesitate to ask. We'll go back. No problem. Um. Okay. So. Conciliarism is really one of my favorite, in a sense, topics because I think it's um, not particularly well known um, in general. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but my sense is it's not, you know, something that that is um, featured certainly in, in people's uh, understanding or, or something that's you, know, you often hear about. Uh, it was in many ways a contentious and difficult time, but uh, but one that's sort of filled with a lot of very interesting figures and events. The great schism, which prompted all this, um, was a, a kind of, um, yeah, singular event in, in the sense of a number of factors all came together at the same time. This prolonged absence from Rome, with the African papacy, um, you know, the, the sort of political dynamics in, in France and Italy, and you have this um, contested election of Urban VI that was very much, you know, is, is even to this day thought to have been an election that was uh, probably not without some amount of popular um, Pressure, you know, is, is is maybe somewhat stronger than what we can prove definitively, but that there were crowds gathering and chanting for a Roman pope, you know, seems pretty likely. Um, and and what happened was uh, the early weeks and months of the papacy of Urban the Sixth were so um, were so erratic and problematic and, and he seems to really in, in many ways likely have been um, you know unwell mentally unwell um, that the same cardinals who had elected urban the sixth and urban had tried to jail a number of them um, uh, the same cardinals you know withdrew from Rome to um, to say they had been coerced that it wasn't a free election and then and then to elect a different pope, and so, um, you know, that was the, in terms of like the pope anti-pope dynamic, this is really the only occurrence where the college of cardinals, the same college uh, as a body, had effectively uh, made one decision, elected one pope, and then, you know, and it's just a matter of months, said, you know, we take it back more or less. Uh, it wasn't free and, and selected another pope. And so, you know, there there are a number of, of, of anti-popes throughout the history of the church where, you know, it's a disgruntled faction or something. And, you know, there's there's some modest support uh, among, you know, the, you know, a charismatic bishop or something to, to say, no, 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 this is the real pope. Um, but never, never to the extent that you had the same group of cardinals electing both. Um, 
And so it really presented a kind of new set of challenges for how to resolve because um, as I think I indicated in, in, the, in the lecture, you know, in the audio, that there just wasn't, uh, I mean, there was no precedent for this clearly. And, and to the extent that it had been contemplated, it, it was really in the realm of sort of the theoretical, what would happen if, the hypothetical, I should say. And, um, and so there was no good solution that, that anyone could propose uh, except to move to the, the sort of, to, to an ecclesiology that had to, uh, you know, present an alternative, right, to um, singular rule by the Pope, because the, the problem was now you had two individuals both claiming with a certain amount of legitimacy based on the fact that they'd both been elected by, you know, the college, the same college of cardinals, that they were, that they were the Pope. And so this leads us to the conciliar movement or conciliarism, um, you know, I'm not going to go through each and every uh, sort of point here, but I think there are some important things I just, just want to emphasize. Um, the, the argument was, just, just so that it's clear, the, the argument for why both popes in the continuing schism were guilty of heresy. Um, well, sorry, sorry. The argument why, for why both popes could be and should be deposed and, and sort of stripped of their authority was that they were both guilty of heresy. And the rationale was uh, one of the, the marks of the church, one of her characteristics is that she is one. Um, and so the church is to be united and by uh, persisting, obstinately persisting in a situation that continues to divide the church, both popes, both papal claimants, regardless of, you know, a number of other factors were through those very, through that very resistance or stubbornness were dividing the church and therefore guilty of heresy. I mean, um, it, it's hard to imagine in, in many ways for us today, I think, but although it's, it's in some ways analogous, if imperfectly, to, um, you know, what happened in the United States during the Civil War, where, you know, families were sometimes split against each other in the church in the in during the civil war era in the united states you know you'd have religious orders where some were loyal to the the union and some to the confederacy and so you know again it's not a perfect comparison but analogously you have religious orders families like you know big picture families where there's just divided loyalty and also confusion about who the real hope is and um and, you know, this was one, this was a situation that, that could not, um, certainly not be, could not be sustained. Um, you know, to, to me, it's, it's like one of these, uh, things it's like, you have a very complicated and tricky and difficult situation with the two popes. So you decide you're going to resolve it via a council 
and the mechanism for using a council in this way was just not quite developed well enough to do it the right way. And so an already very difficult problem was made worse when the Council of Pisa um, elected a third pope at the Council of Pisa without really having a clear plan or a clear understanding of how they would be able to enforce the deposition of the other two popes. And, and again, some of that had to do with a sort of political, um, political factors where they didn't have uh, unified support of the various uh, political forces in Europe at the time to ensure that they could in fact force the resignations or the deposition of, uh, of the two popes. And, and so they went ahead and elected their own without being able to know that they could get rid of the other two. And so precisely what they had hoped to avoid, they wound up um, you know, exacerbating by creating now a third line of popes. The Council of Constance uh, in, in 1414 was really the, the key moment in the conciliar movement. Um, and and what, they, what they understood more effectively at the Council of Constance than at, at, at Pisa and some of the other ones, again, was the, um, was the importance of sort of political support for doing what they were going to do. And, um, and so the Holy Roman Emperor and some other political leaders by the time of the Council of Constance were ready to, to come to some resolution on on this schism, which had now had, had now uh, gone on for you know 30 uh, yeah like 35 or 40 years almost, um, and so you know the Holy Roman Emperor especially was a, a kind of strong presence. Um, so the Council of Constance was successful in many ways in its aims, importantly in ending the schism. Um, it forced the, the deposition of all three claimants and elected a new pope, um, Martin V. It also did two other things, um, importantly, uh, that, that, you know, make it one of the more <laughs> sort of newsworthy or, or, you know, one of the more memorable councils. Uh, in dealing with the issue of heresy, it saw to the, the sort of trial, if you can call it that, and execution of Jan Hus for heresy. Hus and others um, in other parts of the world, like John Wycliffe in England, if that name means anything, had been pushing for you know, certain kinds of reforms, like vernacular uh, Bibles, you know, buy from the, the language that people spoke um, and could read to some degree. Um, and communion under both kinds, expanding access to precious blood. Um, somebody getting, oh, okay, maybe that was inadvertent. Um, so, um, so Haas and others have been advocating for, you know, some of these reforms, which again, 
um, you know, at the time were, were much more radical than they perhaps strike us where, you know, circumstances are very diff different. The, the literacy rate, you know, today is much different than it was in, in the 15th century. The level of education and an ability to sort of understand and, and things like that and, and the appreciation for the impact of uh, sort of personal devotion to and reflection upon the, the word of God was, was much different. So Huss was, uh, you know, was con convicted of heresy and was burned at the stake, uh, which was seen as a, a kind of blow to any ref reforming efforts along these lines of uh, vernacular uh, Bibles or, or, or similar things. And then finally, the Council of Constance tried to in, uh, install conciliarism as kind of effective governing model for the church moving forward. And so you have this document called Frequens, which is, you know, it's so close to the word frequent that it's kind of clear what, what it's about, where they wanted to make councils a regular feature uh, of, of church life. I mean, it's, it's very interesting, and I'm certainly not looking to push this comparison too far because there's just a a difference in, in the level of authority. But today, I, I think Pope Francis has certainly indicated that a lesser form of uh, kind of consultative church governance, which um, he has supported the use of, namely the synod or the use of synods, is something that he wants to be a much more regular feature of uh, the church's life. And I think we're going to have a synod on synods uh, soon, within the next couple of years. I, I don't remember the exact year. It, it may even be this year or next year. I'm, I'm not certain. Um, but a synod on synodality, if you will. Um, now, the synods do not, again, in our current context, to be very clear, the synods don't um, enjoy, if you will, or have the same doctrinal weight as a general council, which is, you know, a gathering of all of the bishops ostensibly at least in theory, all of the bishops of the church, um, you know, to, to discuss matters of, of faith. Uh, and so, you know, the, what they were looking to do in, in the 1400s with frequents was have, you know, again, ultimately it would have been about like every 10 years, there will be a general council. So like, like you know, 10, yeah, in 1973, I'm sorry, 1975, I should say, 65, Vatican II closes, there would be a Vatican III, and in 85, there'd be a Vatican IV, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so, um, you know, that was the goal. Obviously, it, it didn't happen. Um, and conciliarism fell apart um, rather quickly, thanks to, um, in some ways, its own success. Um, it was... It was very effective at resolving the schism, but as a result, it kind of returned the church to a sense of normalcy around it, its governance, which is to say there's one pope who is sort of like the the absolute monarch, if you will, the, the successor of Peter. And um, that, that was how people sort of sensed authority ought to be used in political uh, context. That's where things were heading, you know, in an increasing fashion. Kings uh, were were the order of the day, not democracies, 
you know, not democratic republic. Uh, it was all about kind of absolute monarchy or, or, or the, um, the rule of one. And so, you know, the, the conciliarists were, were sort of swimming against the, the current or the t fighting the tide of um, political authority and, and how it was to be exercised. And then they made a tremendous kind of tactical error in reintroducing schism, um, you know, when, when uh, Eugene IV wanted to transfer the Council of Basel. Um, that, that was just a miscalculation and, and a kind of weariness around um, div division within the church on the official level that, that um, once they refused to go along with the Pope's desire to transfer the council, which had always been a papal prerogative, um, you know, they, they, lost, they lost a lot of support. And on top of that, this negotiation of reunion with the, the Eastern churches, again, not very successful and not very long lasting, but it just kind of re, uh, or reminded, I should say, people of, you know, the way that everyone has always understood the church uh, in the West, especially, was that, you know, the Pope is at the head. So, you know, who is the patriarch of Constantinople going to work out uh, a, a reunion with? Um, you know, a group of, of bishops at, at a council in Switzerland or the Pope in Rome. And, and um, it, it seemed like, you know, again, that, that event plus the reintroduction of, of schism, uh, you know, really signaled the end of conciliarism. Uh, but again, it, it, it did some important things in, in specifically resolving the, the great schism, which was a big problem. Um, but also offering an alternative model of, of church governance that uh, would not be forgotten forever. And certainly in, in later periods, and as we've approached the more modern era, uh, people have taken a look at this, uh, this conciliar movement to understand how, how there could be um, you know, more consultative uh, modes of governance within the church, even while retaining you know, the authority of Pope. Okay, uh, any questions about conciliarism? Did all the popes uh, claim uh, succession when they had the three popes? Yeah, they did. They did. So, um, and, and the way it would work is they just had so so the the first two lines like the roman line and the avignonese line you know that was kind of straightforward enough in terms of how they disputed the others so the roman line even though urban the sixth was kind of crazy um the roman line just said look you know he was the next guy elected pope uh after after his predecessor died like he's clearly the successor of of peter um and and the second guy clement who had been elected clement seventh had been elected in avignon you know was illegitimate because there wasn't a conclave can't elect a pope when there's already one now there you know that's that's just not that's not um, something they can do and so the roman line said the avignon line is illegitimate because we already have a pope it's you know it's our guy the 
the Avignon line said the Roman line from Urban the Sixth on is entirely illegitimate because Urban's election was coerced. Um, it's not a it's not a, a fair it's not a legitimate sorry election a legitimate canonical election if it's not free. Um, and so any any threat of violence or or coercion invalidates the invalidates the election, and as a result. Uh, any of Urban's successors are similarly invalid, um, and so that was how the the Avignon line discredited the Roman line. Now it's going to take um, what is that, 1378, about 30 years until we get to the Council of Pisa, and so the Pisan line, uh, the Council of Pisa, I should say. It's very fascinating. The, the, the debates in the Council of Pisa are actually um, very interesting, and and because they weren't able to find agreement on on which of the two um, of the two lines was likely the legitimate one, but they didn't need to answer that question in their view. Instead, they were just looking at the the situation in the current moment. In this case, 1409, and they said regardless of what you think uh, happened between 1378 and now, what we have is no Pope currently at the moment because both of the guys claiming to be Pope are heretics because of this issue of unity or the lack of unity and, and continuing the division of the church. Therefore, there are no Popes. There, there is no legitimate successor at the moment. And so when, um, when Alexander V was elected um, by by the P the Council of Pisa in 1409, he simply said, you know, I'm the next successor without without taking a particularly clear stance on whether it was the Roman line that had been legitimate in 1378 or Avignon. Does that help? You know, it's it's one of the and and um Bear with me one sec. It's one of the um, the sort of I, I mentioned. I think I mentioned, didn't I? Um, John the twenty third. Yeah. Um, the controversy around John the twenty third in in the in the nineteen uh, nineteen fifty eight when Angela Roncalli was elected pope and wanted to take the name John, you know, they had to go back and say, well, what's the number? And there had been this Pisan Pope called John the 23rd. And, and there was some question as to whether or not, um, he counted. And in the end they said, no, he doesn't count. And so Roncalli takes a number, um, takes the number 23. Um, but what, what is, you know, telling about the confusion and, and um, Sorry, I don't have the yellow book handy, but if you have the, the blue Vidmar book, I'll, I'll just explain this. If it's not close at hand, don't worry. In the back, you've probably noticed there's this chronological list of popes. And so if you turn to page 367, um, about midway, just a little bit more than midway down the page, you'll see the listing for Pope Alexander IV. And Alexander IV was uh, Pope from 1254 to 1261. Okay, so that, that's very nice, right? And now, 
I we normally do this exercise that what I would allow it to go on for like, you know, at least 30 seconds or, or a minute or something, where I would say, okay, so that's Alexander the Fourth. Um, tell me when, uh, when Alexander the Fifth was Pope. And everybody, you know, looks at their at the list and maybe looks at it twice. And you realize that when you turn the page, the 368 in this case, the next occurrence of Alexander, again, not quite halfway down, with a number is Alexander the Sixth in 1492 to 1503. And the point here is when we had, uh, what, five, five centuries plus to, you know, get some distance from the great schism, it was clear to historians looking back that the Pisan line, for example, was not a legitimate, was not the legitimate line. In the end, it, it was, the, the determination was made that it was the Roman line. Therefore, the Pisan Pope who took the name John the 23rd is, it was an anti-Pope, he doesn't count. Therefore, the next John takes a number 23. With 500 years of history, you can figure that out, with 500 years of distance. However, with, with barely, uh, what, 75 years or so, well, even less than that, at the end of the 1400s, it was far less clear, even in that, even in that age, you know, which was the legitimate successor of Peter during this, this era of the Great Schism. And so when, when the Pope was elected and he says, I want to take the name Alexander, the thinking was, it was certainly at least possible that Alexander V, the Pisan Pope, was a, a real Pope. Now, today, looking back in the official uh, understanding of the history, we don't accept that the Pisan Popes, any of them, Alexander or John, uh, either of them, I should say, we don't accept that either was legitimate. And But what, what we have is a situation where, in the one case, Alexander was treated as if he were legitimate, by virtue of the fact that the next Alexander took the number six instead of the number five. But 500 years later, the next John takes the number 23, realizing by then that the John the 23 from the, the same line, the same Pisan line was not legitimate. So um, again, I, I point this out and I like to point it out because it's a, it's a kind of confounding um, uh, sort of incident and it just speaks to how confusing the great schism was and all of the attempts to resolve it um that even in the numbering of the various popes there's a kind of inconsistency in how how these lines are treated does that make sense okay okay um The Renaissance, as much as I like it, uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on it um, by way of these kind of comments. Uh, you know, the key, one key development, and I give a number of examples, um, and, and I think this is something that maybe comes through in the more arts-based portrayals or, or um, lenses with which one views the Renaissance is the the term humanism is really central to understanding the Renaissance. 
Um, so I give you on, on the outline for the Renaissance, there's a number of, there are a number of individuals that are associated with humanism, but the concept itself, a kind of renewed confidence and optimism in the powers of, you know, man in the broad sense, men and women, um, really characterized the, the Renaissance and separated it from, um, the age before it. And again, it was a recovery of that sort of classical Greek and Roman culture, but, you know, from a largely sort of Christian influenced perspective. Um, and so humanism, the humanism of the Renaissance will go a long way towards helping to shape some of the more modern conceptions that will be, um, built upon like in the enlightenment, for example, the Renaissance popes, uh, you know, sort of notoriously were often involved in immorality and other kinds of illicit behavior. Um, and, and so the Renaissance papacy is often seen as a, a kind of, um, as a kind of, uh, you know, black mark in the, in the history of, of the popes. Um, and, and finally, just because he's, he's just like a crucial figure in, in terms of the influence he had on later generations, even if he's maybe not as well known, you know, in our day, Erasmus of Rotterdam, um, or you know, also just most of the time called Erasmus, um, was a great example of what I, you know, would call Christian humanism, like explicitly Christian humanism. Um, so the humanism at the, you know, of the Italians, um, the humanism of the Italians was certainly influenced by Christianity, but was much, much more willing to be skeptical of religion and challenge it. Um, whereas the Northern European Renaissance especially embodied by someone like Erasmus kind of assumed the, uh, the claims of the church of Christianity as the starting point and sought to, you know, use them to interpret some of these uh, ideas about, about the power of, of humanity and, and things like that. And so Erasmus's uh, conception of human nature and, and, and things like that is, is a much more sort of Christian tinged version of, of sort of humanist movement humanism movement and unfortunately just as a heads up if i understand it correctly and i'm, I'm not sure i would certainly not claim to be an expert there is a kind of modern humanism or humanist movement that um you know uses that term to refer to itself that i think is is sort of explicitly atheistic kind of um you know treats science as 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 the main um guidepost so I don't want to confuse the two things. The humanism of the Italian Renaissance was, you know, more skeptical and willing to challenge religion, but did not abandon it entirely in a way that I think any modern use of that term generally means something like secular humanism, um, just, just for your own uh, awareness. Um, Okay, so that's the Renaissance sort of overview, but in listening to the, the audio uh, lecture, does anyone have any questions about it or, or comments? 
a lot of changes that were taking place in with the papacies and so forth. Did anybody ever write or address how this had an impact or affected the common people? That as far as who did they look to as far as church was concerned? Uh, you know, you would have the uh, village priest. Who did they report to? I mean, who was you know? Or do they even know? Yeah, good question. I mean, the effect on the sort of the average Catholic, if you will, would, would probably relatively minor in all likelihood because i mean even in the way you asked your question you sort of touched on it which is the main figure of religious authority or i don't know i mean i, I mean i'd just be guessing at a percentage but a very high percentage of catholics you know in the 90s i'm sure the main source and sort of figurehead of religious authority in their lives for the vast vast majority of catholics was quite simply the, the parish priest. That was it. it. It didn't go much beyond that. It might go to the bishop because the bishop would come, you know, every now and then and administer the sacrament of confirmation. But even at that, the, the bishop's own rule within his diocese tended to be, you know, not always one, like in, in today's church, it's, it's um, you know, very clear what authority the bishop has and you know his relationship to his pastors whereas in the middle ages for a long time you know pastors enjoyed a tremendous amount of uh, authority and you know in in i don't know i know a number of you guys uh, are, are here you know are in the bridgeport diocese and so i'm not sure what the policy is there um but like in new york there's essentially like a term limit policy in effect where you know you can be a pastor for two six-year terms and then there are a couple exceptions so 12 years total um and so you you have like a, a much greater turnover of priests over the the life of you know a family let's say whereas in in the middle ages you know that you were probably just going to be there um you know, for your entire life, you could be a priest for 30, you know, you could be the pastor for 30, 40 years. You could, you could uh, give the sacrament to two or two and a half, three generations worth of people within a family. And so that was the real source of authority. Uh, and, you know, there wasn't much of a relationship or connection between the sort of average parish, parish priest, if you will, and, and the Pope. I mean, the Pope was, was much more concerned with, um, you know, some of the higher level administrative struggles within the church, as well as sort of the political maneuvering in terms of its role as the head of the papal states. But, it, it, you know, the question, if the question is sort of focusing on the experience of the average common, you know, Catholic in the pews and, in, in, you know, in the, in the early 1400s, um, I think I mentioned that, you know, at some point along the line, I mentioned that some priests took to praying for the Pope during the Eucharistic prayer uh, by saying, you know, we pray for the Holy Father, whichever one he may be. Um, while that, you know, there there's some record of that, um, it, it wouldn't have had a major impact um, in terms of their experience of, of going to church or, or, or whatever. It's just, we, we live in a, it's such a different world in terms of our, even knowledge of the Pope. I mean, 
you know, I get, I get the news delivered, like the updates and like every day it's like Pope Francis said this, Pope Francis said that, whatever. And it's like 30 years after, uh, a little bit more than 30 years after the council of Trent, uh, was concluded. The decrees had not even been publicly pronounced or published in France. Um, and so it was just, it's just a very different sort of mindset that we have in terms of our, I mean, the global knowledge of, you know, world events and everything at the moment's notice has obviously changed our relationship to ecclesiastical authority. But um, for most of the church's history, arguably until the late 19th century, uh, the connection of the average uh, Catholic to the Pope was, was quite limited. The Catholics had a duty to pray for the Holy Father. There's no doubt about that. It was, you know, remembered at, at every mass, prayed for at every mass, and and you know, it was part of your responsibility to pray for the Pope. But one's engagement with or sort of experience of influence of specific Pope was was actually quite low. But how did the, how would the bishops or the cardinals determine to whom they they owed obedience? During the during the Great Schism, you mean? Yes. Yeah, no, I mean, they did their best to do it. Um, and, and they did it with difficulty. Now, I, you know, one of the things, these, these tended to break down uh, to some degree along, not perfectly, but to, in, in many ways along national lines. And so the, you know, m most of the French bishops, say, wound up um, siding with uh, the Avignon line. Um, whereas many of the Italian bishops uh, w were were sort of, by some of their misgivings, uh, partial to the, the Roman line, the urban line. After we get the Pisan line, um, like the Holy Roman Empire, the bishops of, the, uh, of Germany essentially were somewhat divided, but many of them wound up sort of having allegiance or obedience to the Pisan line. And so... There was no clear and and within countries though there there were differences within within basically each and every country you could find examples of you know the bishop of you know Leon thinks it's the the Roman line and the bishop of Marseille thinks it's the Avignon line so it, it was it was um, there was no neat way to to, uh, to to tell and and most bishops you know made the best sort of judgment that they could. And, and again, you saw with religious orders where one one uh, uh, Benedictine monastery here would <coughs> acknowledge the Roman line as the real one. Another Benedictine uh, monastery, you know, the abbot of a Benedictine monastery, 300 miles away in another part of Europe, would have obedience essentially to the other one. Um, so it was a mess. Okay. Um, any other questions about the uh, Renaissance, well, the Schism, Tillier movement, or the Renaissance? You know, I don't want to overstate the connection between the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, which you know we're not going to get to say very much about. But I think it, you know people have a sense in the 18th century, especially. There's kind of this birth of a lot of modern, what we would consider modern ideas around, you know, democracy and freedom, uh, you know, different kinds of liberties that being important to our experience and, 
and, and things like that, like the founding ideals of this country, uh, in many ways reflect enlightenment values around, um, you know, self-government and, and democracy and, and, and things like that. Um, I don't want to overstate the connection, but the Renaissance is kind of a step in the direction of uh, modernity, if not all the way there. And a good example of this is Machiavelli's The Prince. Um, I think I say it in the in the um, recording, but it's worth repeating. Uh, one of the things that's important about Machiavelli's uh, work, The Prince, is that it's the first secular treatise on politics um, in, the, in the sort of Christianized era, if you will. So the city of God, you know, Augustine, Aquinas, all, all the great thinkers around politics did not separate um, political order uh, and political considerations from theology. Machiavelli did, he, in that he did not um, he did not insist on sort of viewing the political realm through primarily through a theological lens. Instead, he just said, I'm just telling you the way it is. Um, rulers act in their own interests. Um, it, it doesn't matter what, what else they say or what else they, you know, want you to think. It doesn't matter what, you know, uh, you know, what their theological background is or whatever. Like there, there's a, a conception of politics that has nothing to do with, you know, God's authority, you know, communicated through, um, kings or, or any of that. It's purely a sort of secular in the sense of a non-religious description of politics and to, to, um, you know, future sort of subsequent generations of political thinkers, um, you know, Machiavelli's insight on this uh, will sort of be influential. Uh, again, it's not overnight. Like in the middle, in the 1500s, the 1600s, some of the greatest um, political theory in the church's tradition is written by, you know, this group in, in at the University of Salamanca in Spain. Uh, the so-called Spanish scholastics, and they were very much, you know, influenced by Aquinas and Augustine and, you know, scholasticism and a theological lens. So I don't want to, again, overstate that Machiavelli like sparked a new revolution of kind of secular political thinking. Uh, it, it wasn't that way, uh, but he was anticipating more modern developments in separating, you know, the church and, and Christianity from this other aspect of. Uh, of so human social life, namely politics. And, and that will be something that continues to be picked up on in the modern era. Okay, um, I uh, think now would be an opportune time to take a break. We will um, come back. I'll run through some key points of the Reformation talks that you listen to, and then we'll turn to the aftermath. Um, feel like I want to apologize for the like rapid na rapid fire nature of this. I hope it's helpful. Um, and, and uh, you know, again, I just want to highlight some things that uh, unfortunately we, we didn't have as much time to talk about. So let's come back at 830. Um, and in the interim, during the break, if you think of any, you know, any lingering questions or whatever, um, you know, send a note or just when we get uh, started after the break, you can ask and we're happy to go back. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>
Nation is a system that uh, was not resolved within a hundred years, and obviously has only expanded and deepened in, into uh, our own day. The the point of the you know some of the introductory remarks I made around the Reformation, around um, you know some of the religious themes that were uh, that were sort of prominent in people's minds, as well as some of the you know incidents where members of religious orders were pushing boundaries and you know maybe going a little too far. Um, you know, I, I really want to communicate whenever I talk about the Reformation, I mean, this is important that, you know, Martin Luther wasn't the first, um, wasn't the first one who, who sort of challenged the church in in ways. I mean, he wasn't the first one who, you know, you know, had this sort of, uh, background in the church and was a priest and was a, a monk and, and a learned theologian and, and, you know, thought that, things needed to change. I mean, he, to that point, he wasn't the first one who thought things needed to change. Um, you know, a lot of what, you know, Luther was saying and doing, if not the, the same thing, certainly echoes of similar arguments and, and, and similar um, attempts at reform had been made by, um, had been made by figures before Luther. And so it's not to, uh, in, in any way, take away from the significance, the historical significance of Luther, because I, I don't think that's possible. I mean, he's clearly a very significant figure. Um, but sometimes, I guess I've encountered in, in certain books, and, and even in the way sometimes the story is told, um, that that he he like appears like a, a sort of, um, you know, he appears out of nowhere with all of these new radical revolutionary ideas to challenge the church um, that really upends everything. And, and, and again, I, I just want to push back on that to the, to the extent that, um, you, you know, these ideas that he's championing don't come out of nowhere. They didn't just randomly occur to him. Um, you know, some of the reforming tendencies were there, um, you know, in both people that wound up being deemed heretics as well as those who did not. Um, you know, at various uh, moments in the in the centuries leading up to the Reformation, and so um, you know that's kind of what I'm driving at, which is not to see Luther as inventing all of these um, sort of new thoughts about like, boy, the church is in bad shape; it needs to be reformed, uh, or um, you know, the church needs to change its its view of you know, how it engages the laity and what kind of responsibility it it um, allows, you know, for their own sort of religious development. You know, that many of those same kinds of challenges had already been made. And particularly, you know, one of the reasons that the church was arguably so both slow and seemingly ineffective to respond to Luther is because they, they didn't think they were encountering anything new. They thought this was all stuff they had seen and dealt with before, and so they used the same playbook, if you, if you will, um, you know that that they had been using. I mean, like, there's a whole chapter in that playbook on like, you know, annoying wayward monks who who give us a hard time about stuff. It's like chapter 11. Um, 
there's really no book. There's no chapter 11. Um, I thought I thought I would try and get one in today. I'm, I'm talking a mile a minute, but I thought I'd go for at least one. Um, but again, it's true. They, they really did think that they had seen this before. Um, what they hadn't, what they didn't appreciate was that the political forces were aligning in such a way with the Holy Roman Empire to enable Luther to resist uh, any arrest or trial and whatever, and sort of maintain his freedom in combination with, and again, this is something that I think is often, you know, included in the story of Reformation, and rightly so, uh, in combination with a, a significant technological advance, namely the printing press, which allowed Luther's ideas to be disseminated to a much wider audience than, um, than otherwise would have. And again, the church probably, church leaders did probably did not sufficiently appreciate that aspect of it either, that they were dealing with, um, they had to be prepared to deal with the spread of information in a new way. And so, um, you know, I, I, I hope it was clear enough, you know, the, the various, um, the sort of the blow by blow, step by step account of Luther challenging the church and, and all of that and, and how the church responded, ultimately leading to his condemnation and excommunication. Um, but again, his, his political support from Frederick the Wise um, was, was what enabled him to, you know, resist any any capture and punishment if you will by the church and and again to this very important and and kind of um critical factor the pope himself uh you know at the time was preferred that frederick the wise luther's protector be the next holy roman emperor instead of the sort of very catholic strongly opposed to any any new ideas uh king of spain charles v and so the pope acted in his political interest to support somebody who was sympathetic to luther theologically uh frederick the wise instead of acting in sort of religious interest to um to support charles v who almost certainly would have put down um sort of the lutheran uh movement because he, he had no interest in division within the Holy Roman Empire if he were to be emperor. And, and so this is, you know, I don't know whether you want to say it's the inevitable consequence of, you know, the, the Pope as both a religious and political leader, that eventually he was going to face a decision point where he had to choose, you know, where his political interests pointed in one direction and his his sort of theological or religious interest pointed in the opposite direction. And we have to make a choice that, that would necessarily put them in conflict with each other. Again, whether that was inevitable or not, I, I don't know. Um, but it's what we had here. And, and the Pope chose the political interest of sort of not wanting to agitate Frederick the Wise. Therefore, Luther was, was given um, the ability to, do, to sort of retain his... Um, I'm going to use freedom loosely here because he was sort of protected in a way. He wasn't free to move about, but he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, seized by, uh, the army of 
uh, of Frederick the Wise, they rather protected him. And so, um, you know, that, that calculated decision by the Pope um, gave Luther the time and the opportunity in combination with the printing press to um, get, you know, a number of people persuaded and, and to develop a movement that was ultimately uncontainable once the church realized the scope of what, what was going on. Should also say a few, just very briefly about, you know, the the sola, um, the, the various solas of Martin Luther, sola scriptura, the Bible alone, um, sola fide, justification by faith alone. Uh, and, and so, you know, these are, you know, hall, uh, highlights, hallmarks, whatever, of of his his theology and. and um, uh, you know, certainly to this day, retain influence within sort of the Protestant, within the Protestant um, framework. Um, okay, let me pause there. Any questions about Luther or Lutheranism? Um. I have a question. Go for it. What exactly, so sure, Luther, like, you know, broke away from the church, but what was his idea of church after that? Like, I'm not really understanding, like, his liturgy or what Sundays look like, you know? I don't know if that's clear. Yeah, no, it it was still, it was was still quite um, Catholic in, in many ways. Um... His liturgical, Luther's sort of, again, I want to be careful because, like, if the question is about Luther versus Lutheranism, you know, then we have to make distinctions because within a few generations, this has changed. But Luther himself, um, other than kind of modifying the rituals around some of the sacraments and um, and, and obviously not including other, uh, you know, sacraments that he didn't think counted, um, the, the liturgy was fairly, um, can I say, if I say hi, do you know what I mean? Like, like it's still fairly structured, kind of elaborate, like ritualistic. Um, he did not, and, and this, by the way, is one of the things, you know, there's this whole other wing of the Reformation that, that I don't talk about, even if we had all the time, you know, that we wanted for this course, you know, I probably would only be able to talk about it if we were just doing courts on the Reformation which is that there's this whole other wing of the Reformation called the Radical Reformation. And some of Luther's earlier followers, like Zwingli and others, get involved in it. And it kind of breaks further and further away. And, and the Radical Reformation is making the point, like, Luther was on to something, but he was just, like, a wimp. Like, he didn't go far enough. Like, he didn't cast aside, you know, all of the, the Catholic, you know, nonsense that he should have. He still retained, I mean... Luther retained um, devotion to Mary. Um, you know, for an early period, actually, he retained uh, auricular confession. Eventually, he kind of lost interest in that. Um, but you know, Sunday. I mean, one of the differences, right, of, in terms of liturgically speaking, would have been the use of the vernacular as, as the sort of the the way liturgy was presented. Um, but but like a sort of celebration of communion would have been. You know, part of it, it would have looked a little bit different, but um, you know, 
reformers after Luther thought that he was insufficiently critical and, and of, of too many Catholic things, and it included the kind of liturgical sensibilities um, that that many of which he, he retained, while, you know, while altering. Again, I don't want to make it seem like there were no differences, but but um, he was certainly closer to um, certainly closer to sort of the Catholics than the Catholics and later generations would be in many ways, just to jump at, jump over topics for a second. It's like Henry VIII. Um, you know, Henry VIII is going to be criticized, you know, posthumously basically, um, but by others who say he didn't go far enough. Um, you know, he retained far too uh, high a sense of, of liturgy. Uh, you know, retaining the calendar even to this day, the the Anglican Church retains the same, um, you know, structure to the the liturgical calendar and all of those things. Um, you know, again, we're not we don't get to it in this in this uh, course, but like the Puritans, um, and 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 ultimately, <coughs> sort of Puritanism, which starts in uh, in 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 Europe. And, and, and comes to to the United States, to America, to the New World, is premised on not just that Henry VIII didn't go go far enough, but even like the Elizabethan settlement, which was kind of a moderate, somewhat compromised view of uh, of the English Reformation, didn't go far enough. You know, why are these Anglican priests still wearing vestments? That's just like Romish superstition. Um, and so this is a, an ongoing tension within. Protestantism in general, which is, um, you know, how much of things that smacked of Catholicism could you retain? But the the, the flip side of that is, and, and this I think is a, you know, I think a fair enough way to evaluate it is like once you get to that stage uh, where you sort of have discarded almost all of the the structure and the trappings, if you will, of what has come before. Then you're kind of in, inventing almost brand new, um, a, a new sensibility and approach to worship and and practice the practice of Christianity, which is why you see such dramatic splintering within the Protestant world um, in the even first hundred years. Um, because if you strip everything away, something has to fill that, and what filled it was, you know, the, the sort of sensibilities of countless different figures all across Europe and the New World, and so. Um, uh, I, I feel like that was probably too long of an answer, but I, was that helpful? Thanks. Please. So, uh, it, it's, it's on the same vein, but did Luther really expect a church to be called the Lutheran Church? No, no, no. no. Yeah, I mean, I, it just seems to me ridiculous. I, I don't think he expected that to occur. No, he just thought it was the church. Yeah. You know, he didn't, and again, I, I think, you know, in the interest of like, you know, trying to be not just like fair, but I think really ge genuinely like get at what these reformers thought, they didn't see themselves as creating a new church. They saw themselves as recovering the original church that had been lost, um, that, that things had gone wrong and had gone astray. And, and they saw themselves as just getting back in touch with sort of a recovery of the way things used to be like in the early church or in the post-apostolic age whatever it may be 
Um, not that not that they were creating a church that would you know bear their name or something centuries later. That that was certainly not. Um, now, look, Luther and to a lesser degree, Calvin, you know, had certain aspects in their personality that, you know, looking back, you, you might wonder, you know, there, there was a certain amount of, of uh, sort of uh, egotism and maybe pride in some cases, um, where you might get, you know, you might see like some criticism of that historically, but no, I, I think all, all uh, overall, it's it's more fair to say that that they thought. I'm, I'm excluding Henry VIII. I think that's a different situation. I think that both, <laughs> yeah, both, both Luther and Calvin genuinely thought um, that what they were doing was uh, returning the church to a more authentic version of itself, um, more in line with you know the revelation of the Gospels and and early uh, sort of apostolic age no, and two different accounts um, one that I read said that if you'd ask Luther and Luther at the time that he died he would tell you that he was still Catholic it's just the church had gone astray you know yeah and, yeah that's right but on the other hand too you know when you talk about the difference is that his belief in the consubstantiation versus the transubstantiation was probably liturgically one probably one of the most significant issues, you know, that he dealt with on there outside the mechanics of the papacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, although, you know, what's very, the, the, the historical study of the, let's call it the Holy Roman Empire in the 16th and 17th century is really fascinating, but also well, I'll just speak for myself. I find it very frustrating because there's a, so much conflicting evidence um, of, you know, when scholars go into these various archives and, and see what they can find. Um, there's just so much conflicting evidence about, you know, how, how sort of the Catholic and Lutheran um, communities worshiped and how, how this played out. And, it, and it's almost like, you know, it's our last class, so I'll try and maybe you know make some connections to like the very beginning. It's almost like at, at the in the early church, you know, I think we made the point. It wasn't like one day everyone woke up and was like, oh, okay, well, there's this new thing called Christianity, and so the Judaism that we all used to practice is now in the past, and now we're all Christian. We are Christians, and they're Jews, and like it's just clear cut. Like there's the line; they stand on this side of the line, we stand on that side of the line. What you find in in these communities, these towns and cities in the Holy Roman Empire, is like just total confusion about you know what it means to be Catholic or Protestant or Lutheran, and and, and just inconsistency all over the board. Where ostensibly uh, Catholic towns like seem to reflect you know a liturgy that that maybe was you know seemed to be more um, of the belief that that would have been like Luther's teaching on consubstantiality or you, you retain, um, or you see Lutheran communities where they retain, um, you know, some Catholic practices that Luther himself would have, uh, would have rejected. In other words, it wasn't just as clear as like, Oh, well, okay. Now there's a Lutheran church down the street from the Catholic church and the Lutherans go there. And the it wasn't like that at all. It was a messy, confusing, 
often kind of self-contradictory process. And the historiography of, of that era, again, I guess I find it frustrating because I, I don't even know, like, in some ways how to get at a, a, an accurate overall picture because, like, every data set is its own kind of story about this mixing of, of two um, approaches to Christianity. And, again, we benefit. We today benefit from 500 years of theological development and uh, ecumenical dialogue and whatever. So we can say, oh, the, the, the dividing line between Luther and, uh, and Catholicism on salvation is X, Y, and Z. And here's practically what that means. But I mean that, again, we're lucky. We get to, we, we get to sort of uh, benefit from the work that, and, and the thinking and the trial and error that a lot of others before us have, have gone through. But in the early decades, generations of, of the Reformation, it was far less clear cut. Similar story with Calvinism. Calvinism, you know, in some communities was pretty clear cut because, uh, you know, some of the most sort of closely devoted um, followers of Calvin really took a hard line in terms of uh, some of the rules they imposed. Um, but there were also, uh, oh, I can't remember that. There's one study of a town, a Swiss town, where it's like the liturgy appears almost to have been entirely unmodified. Um, but just some of the translations were, were sort of tweaked to reflect a more sort of Calvinist sensibility. But and, and it was still done in Latin, even though, you know, Calvin himself would not have really had any, any preference for that. And so, again, it's, it's not just like, you know, there wasn't like, um, you know, Luther and Calvin couldn't post their, their, um, their worldviews and their liturgical sensibilities on, you know, whatever, Twitter or something. And, and everybody would just be like, oh, okay, now I get it. Like, if we're a follower of Calvin, we're supposed to do X, Y, and Z. It was... Um, a gradual process. Just to make an observation, I think it was really funny though that, you know, when you were saying that Luther, like he thought he was like finding the true church or just going back to it, but yet like him and his contemporary reformers didn't even get along on how to interpret, you know what I mean? So I just find that, I find that so fascinating that even the contemporary people weren't getting along. That's right. You know, yep, yeah, and I mean that's one of the the great disappointments, um, and it was like it, the arrow pointed in both directions here in terms of uh, people were disappointed in Luther, and I think Luther was disappointed in people, other people. Was this incident of the the peasants' revolt, where you know everybody thought they or not everybody, but many people in in Germany, especially like the, the sort of the common folks, the peasants, thought they understood, like, Luther was this great champion of the little guy and, and fighting for, you know, um, you know, fighting against uh, overbearing institutionalism and whatever. And so these peasants, like, enter into a revolt against the, the sort of uh, political leadership and Luther sides with the, with the big guys, with, you know, with the state, basically. And, and so, um, yeah, these weren't like perfectly clear, free from any internal uh, contradiction ideas. And and as you say, and I think it's a, it's a very good point too, like even among uh, 
not even Luther and Calvin, but even within Lutheranism, and then subsequently within Calvinism, you start to see, you know, certain kinds of splintering within within a matter of years, frankly. Okay, excellent. Um, so, yeah, Luther and Calvin, I think, uh, you know, ought to be considered as you know, having important sort of theological contributions um, in terms of, you know, the, the challenges of the church and the aftermath. The English Reformation, you know, is just so, so highly bound up in, in political considerations and the king, um, the king's, uh, you know, the issue of his divorce and remarriage or whatever being, being such a, a sort of focal point of that that it morphed into a, a, a much more politis, uh, politically oriented version of uh, a, a kind of reformation movement. Now, what I will say is, once again, to tie it back to our, our themes, you know, this question of the relationship of church and state, which we've been entertaining off and on, you know, throughout the entire course and seeing, you know, the, the same the same state that can rescue you from, um, you know, when Charlemagne sort of protects the Pope or when Otto rescues the, the, the Pope from the, the rescues the church from the sort of the papal pornocracy in the dark ages of the papacy, you know, that same, um, that same person, the King or the emperor or whoever can just as easily say, uh, I'm going to pass the act of supremacy, declaring myself the head of the church of England. And so, you know, the, the, the way in which that relationship sort of ebbed and flowed throughout the Middle Ages culminates, I think, in, in sort of this um, more politically oriented reformation where Henry VIII just declares, like, the investiture controversy, you know, he's got no time for that. Uh, I'm just going to say I'm the head of the church in England and, and, and then run it. You know, it's, it's up to me. It's just like a department of state. Um, you know, we'll make the Archbishop of Canterbury like a cabinet official, but ultimately he answers to me. Uh, you know, that was that was sort of the the mindset. And then, you know, you have this pushing of the boundaries under the Edwardian period, um, you know, going into a more Protestant direction that generated like, you know, some backlash when when Queen Mary comes along and you know, restores Catholicism, but does it in just such a you know, kind of ham-handed way, um, you know, looking to punish everyone and, and really, really setting the stage for her own demise, um, you know, by, by not seeking to accommodate in, in any way, but, but rather through, through force and coercion to, um, to, um, you know, reinstitute Catholicism. And then this Elizabethan settlement is really a kind of more moderate Protestantism as a as a guiding framework moving forward uh, for about 50 years for, for Elizabeth. So uh, again, I think you know there's still a lot of intrigue, a lot of interesting tidbits about the English Reformation. But what's striking to me, you know, in our course, is how how it it sort of speaks to one way in which the the close relationship between church and state 
can go entirely off the tracks uh, and lead to you know an outcome of, of schism. Okay. Any questions? Any other questions about any aspect of the Reformation? Um, while, uh, or I guess it was before the, just before the class started, um, I added another outline, just, I don't know why, <laughs> just so you could see it, um, in, in case you, uh, want to reference it about, um, the Catholic encounter reformation. And, um, you know, we've, we've got less than half an hour left, so I'm just going to sort of talk through certain aspects of, of this. Um, ironically, the title of the outline itself, Catholic and Counter-Reformation, um, is sort of part of the, the, the key takeaway that I'd like, like to communicate, however briefly, <laughs> right now, which is there's this big his, uh, debate within the sort of historiographical community, of, uh, among historians, in other words, about whether this period after the Reformation, after the church's sort of response to Martin Luther and Calvin should be called the Catholic Reformation or should be called the Counter-Reformation. Some people insist it should be, you know, pluralized to be called the Catholic Reformations, that there were too many, you know, differences or Counter-Reformations. There are literally books about this topic that are just like historiographical arguments. In other words, they're not arguing about um, what happened. They're arguing about how historians called the thing that happened. It's purely like navel gazing in, in a sense uh, among historians about like, well, in the 1700s, the Italian historian so-and-so used to call it this. Now, I kind of find that humorous in a way, but earlier, uh, you know, centuries, in earlier centuries, the historians were like, you know, really important and, and in some ways kind of controversial figures. And so the way you called um, a historical event, you know, shaped people's conception of it and, um, and you know, really, really set sort of the, the understanding of, of what had happened. And so even though today it kind of seems like, uh, you know, this kind of scholarly or academic um, argument to name you know, the, to name this period of the Catholic response, um, there really is something substantive underlying it. And I think what, what, what I think is the substantive point to be made here is that there really are two uh, kind of currents that are running in parallel um, that characterize the church's response to Martin Luther. Now, one of those currents is um, a much more direct response to the specific challenges of Luther and Protestantism more generally. And that's what we would call the Counter-Reformation. So the Counter-Reformation would be, um, you know, ways in which the church specifically um, attempted to rebut you know, Luther's teachings or ideas or, or, or whatever, you know, the case may be. In other words, it's, it's a counter response. Um, 
However, there are other movements, currents, whatever, within the church that really occurred, unfolded in the 16th century, uh, but apart from Martin Luther or Calvin or any of the Protestants, and were, were really important reforming movements. And so it doesn't make sense to treat specific responses that were directed at Protestantism and other movements that kind of had their own energy and own momentum, um, it doesn't quite make sense to just call those the same thing. And so, uh, again, it's not original to me, but I, I like to go with this sort of expression or, or the terminology of the Catholic and counter-reformation. Because the 16th century and, and into the 17th century is really a period where there are specific responses that the church is taking to respond to um, to Protestantism. That's the Counter-Reformation. Alongside other reforming movements and tendencies within the church that will have tremendous impact that had nothing to do with Luther or that had, you know, were already well underway prior to 1517. And that's what I, uh, that's what we would sort of mean by the, the Catholic Reformation. And so, um, however, I do want to be clear. This is a, this is this is a sort of a helpful framework. I hope it's helpful to understand, you know, this period. But it's not like things get clearly labeled Counter Reformation or Catholic Reformation. It's just um, a way of acknowledging that uh, a way of acknowledging that the the response of the church in the 1500s wasn't always simply um, a function of what was happening in Germany. A good example of that uh, is is all of these uh, new religious orders that were created, as well as uh, a renewal of religious life known as observantism, which was like a return to... My cat just knocked over a bottle of something that has now spilled all over the floor. Um, No, no, no. I think it was like vitamin D, which I don't know. Maybe that's a metaphor for something, but um, yeah, I know. But it's uh, like really small and there's probably like 10,000 little vitamin D tablets now on the floor, which is fantastic. Um, so observantism, uh, was a sort of reforming movement within religious orders. Um, uh, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross were, were observing Carmelites. Uh, of course, you know, you have a sense of, um, you know, one of the key developments of this time being the founding of the Jesuits. Well, and Ignatius, St. Ignatius Loyola. Well, no. Observantism as a reforming movement within religious life, and even and even Ignatius's desire to establish a religious community, had basically nothing to do with the Protestant Reformation. I mean, they were self-propelled movements um, that had inspiration and momentum from other Catholic sources. Um, you know, Ignatius was not, you know, sitting around thinking, "Man, I really want to do something about that Luther." I mean, he 
it's unclear when he even first would have heard about him. If you you know go through his biography, um, it, it was totally apart from. I mean, the Reformation was kind of a non-event in Spain. Um, Spanish Catholicism was so kind of hardcore. Um, you know, they had just been you know not that long ago that they had reconquered Spain from the Muslims and were like totally committed to to Catholicism. And so in their minds, like to the extent that they even knew something was going on in Germany, like who cares? Like that, that doesn't bother us at all. And from Spain, you see, you know, a number of great uh, saints and religious movements, again, not as a response to what Luther was doing, but simply as, as uh, like the continuation of, of currents and momentum that existed in the church to bring about reform. And so the sort of the terminology around Catholic and counter-reformation seeks to acknowledge that that both were present in this uh, 16th century. And uh, a good example of how they both kind of come together, again, it's it's a framework that's not meant to be, you know, strictly binary. So a good, a good event that exemplifies these two kind of currents converging is the Council of Trent. Uh, and the Council of Trent is really the, the much more formal response of the church to the Protestant Reformation. It takes place over a, a number of years, really over 18 years, but only in kind of uh, over three relatively short periods, not lasting more than a couple of years each. Um, so even though it looks like it was open for 18 years, the, the, the bishops were not meeting for anywhere near that length of time. They would have a session, you know, a period, a couple sessions, they would adjourn and, and then, you know, come back in a couple of years. Um, what can I say about, about the Council of Chen in general terms that, that might be helpful? Um, in many ways, you know, the early periods were marked by, um, some discussion around the degree to which, if any, there might be some accommodating or, let's say, compromising with uh, with Luther or, or with Protestantism in general. Um, there were a number of sort of theological gatherings, um, you know, during this period between Catholics and Protestants. Um, but pretty early on, it was decided that theologically the church was, was simply going to um, reject wholesale Luther's, um, Luther's views. And so, uh, you know, the decree on justification from the Council of Trent reaffirms uh, the sort of traditional view of um, uh, justification by grace um, through faith, but also impacted, if you will, by, uh, by the sort of the, the movement of charity in the individual's heart is expressed in his or her actions. Um, the sort of faith plus works formula versus Luther's sola fide. Um, uh, you know, on the sacraments, a re a reaffirmation of you know the seven sacraments. You know, was a pretty early development in in um, in the council, which you know put again put to rest any any talk of, of trimming down the number as not being biblically based. Um, one, one interesting development, and I, on the outline, if you, if you're looking at it, or if you look at it later, 
at the end of the council, there's a decree on marriage called Tametsi, T-A-M-E-T-S-I, which is a very um, important, kind of interesting document in that it really did have um, a kind of significant impact on the way that marriage was conceptualized and, and, and basically understood after the council. And the, um, a little bit of background, I mean, because I, I don't think it's a very well-known um, sort of piece of the Council of Trent. And again, this, this really was, this was not driven by Martin Luther. He wasn't making this claim. This was something that, you know, a number of priests and bishops had brought to the council as an area of the life in the life of the church that needed attention. And the attention was the pro so-called problem of clandestine marriages. And, uh, you know, even today, right, we, we retain an understanding, the sacramental understanding of marriage is that, that spouses, that the couple confers the sacrament on each other. Um, you know, in, today in the presence of, uh, of uh, a priest and witnesses, but that was not always the case. But the, the understanding of the couple conferring the sacrament on the other was the case. And so in theory, and not just in theory, in practice, prior to the Council of Trent, what you needed for a marriage was simply the consent of the couple to be married. And then, you know, once the marriage was consummated, it was thought to be, you know, valid and legitimate. <clears throat> this led to a big problem, again, of so-called clandestine marriages, which is to say, again, not trying to be, you know, <laughs> whatever, uh, flippant or, or anything, but you would have this issue where uh, a, a younger woman, in, in many cases, would find out uh, she's pregnant. And... Um, you know, that there would be, you know, this r real risk that it would be a great scandal, a, you know, a huge problem, a, a sort of social um, ostracization would follow. And so the couple would, would uh, you know, come back and say, well, you didn't, you didn't get the invitation? Like, I, I don't understand. Like, we registered on thenot.com and, you know, we, uh, we sent the invitations out. It even had, like, the crazy, like, the liner on the envelope and then the other envelope with the liner. And if you can't tell that I'm still traumatized by my own wedding planning, then, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Um, so they would say, well, we were married. Like, yeah, it's great news that she's pregnant because, you know, one night, you know, uh, when we were out to dinner, we exchanged our promise of, you know, our, our lifelong commitment to each other and our desire to be married. And that was theoretically at least possible that that could be a legitimate marriage in practice it led to and, and there are some unbelievable reports from confessors documenting how widespread this problem was across europe um and the problem was a, a kind of he said she said phenomenon where um you know whether or not the, there were any kind of vows exchanged if the man who at the time certainly occupied a higher uh, sort of social position and status wise if he said no I, I i never did i don't know what she's talking about uh, um you know that the woman would really have no recourse um and, and so it was it was a grave um situation and so what tametsi did 
was not change the the form, if you will, of the sacrament, which is still the, the couples conferring it on each other through their vows, through their commitment. But it said it needed to be done um, with witnesses, and one of the witnesses also needed to be a priest uh, or, or a clergy. And so, um, you know, this this is a good example of. You know, the Council of Trent doing something that was not just motivated by the Protestant Reformation, but doing something of, you know, great consequence. Um, so that's that's the Council. Um, the aftermath of the Council, in many ways, is just as significant. Um, the on your outline, I, I mentioned something in, in 1564. The, the, there's a note about the congregation of the Council, and you know, it's just not obvious that this would be an important thing, but it, it actually was quite important because in the aftermath of the council, the Pope um, creates this new congregation, which is like a department in Rome, administrative department, and he gives the congregation sort of the ultimate interpretive power to resolve any and all questions that arise about the implementation of the conciliar decree. And so if somebody had a question like, well, the decree on, um, you know, the, the decree of the Council of Trent on priestly formation talks about instituting seminaries, but what does it mean when it says X or Y? If you had a, a, any question like that on any of the documents, it would go to the Congregation of the Council, which was empowered essentially to provide a definitive authoritative interpretation. And in this case, it's very easy, I think, I hope, to, to point out how important this could be. 50 years now, or more than 50 years, after Second Vatican Council, and if, I, I mean, I'm not saying you have to be deep in the weeds on this stuff, but I'm guessing, you know, most or probably all of you have at least some passing interest in sort of the internal goings-on of the church, and I'm, I'm suspecting that you have at least some familiarity that there's an ongoing seemingly endless debate about how to interpret and understand various documents of Vatican II and well this is what Vatican II meant or that is what Vatican II meant or whatever and the truth is it's just going to keep going on the, the Council of Trent didn't really have this problem because they created an administrative body to provide authoritative interpretation that was the congregation of the Council and so what it did was resolved any of these kinds of disputes, you know, very quickly after they arose. And the sort of longer term consequence of this is that things within the church consolidated, um, maybe not the best word, centralized very, very quickly. And one of the features of, you know, the, the church's response to the Reformation what we might call Tridentine Catholicism. Um, just for old time's sake, I'm going to type one last word into the uh, chat box here as we are just a few minutes left. But Tridentine uh, Catholicism is an adjective. Uh, Tridentine is an adjective. just refers to Trent, actually the city of Trent, because, again, the church has to, you know, make things difficult. So you have to know that the Latin rendering of the city of Trent is Tridentium, and so, um, you know, when we talk about the Tridentine 
right or even like the Tridentine Mass sometimes people call like the older form of the Mass but in general Tridentine Catholicism refers to the period of Catholicism in a few centuries after the Council of Trent it was marked by tremendous centralization and uniformity um, centralization in that the administrative structures of Rome were empowered like they had never been before to kind of govern uh, and regulate the life of the church across the world. Um, and that led to much greater uniformity in Catholic practice than had ever really been known um, since, you know, since the church, you know, expanded, in, you know, let's say post-Constantine. Uh, liturgy is a great example of this. Um, well, uh, before I get to liturgy, let me just say, like under Pius V, and, and he won't be the last, but they issue a catechism. Um, so a, sta a standard set of questions and answers about what is, you know, you know, what are the answers to some of the key questions. Um, but again, now Rome is sort of taking charge and, and providing an authoritative document, an authoritative catechism. Similarly, the Roman Missal in 1570 is the authoritative um, liturgical rite. Now, they did not entirely centralize liturgical rites, but they greatly limited the variety that could exist by the region. And I think, uh, I don't have the notes, I mean, they're open somewhere on my computer, but I don't have them right in front of me. I think the cutoff was like 500 years. So if you had a regional liturgical rite that was at least 500 years old, like the rite, the liturgical rite in the city of Milan, the Ambrosian rite, then you could keep it. But if your if your liturgical rite didn't have at least a 500 year sort of heritage, uh, you know, if, if there wasn't if there weren't distinctive aspects that had been in practice for centuries, then henceforth you would follow the Roman Missal, and that was that. And that was really the first time there had been any movement to centralize the, the liturgical life, the worship of the church in that way, um, such that everyone everywhere would essentially be following the same liturgy. Um, so the aftermath of the council, as they say, was uh, just as important and, and in some ways even more important in setting the uh, next, you know, two centuries or so of the life of the church. And um, also in, in, in this period, we see the, 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 um, the rise. There's not a good segue here. I wish I could think of one quickly, but I can't. Because I want to just mention the Inquisition. Uh, we, we're running out of, of time. Um, you know, the Inquisition, uh, let me... Um, the author that I would just refer you to on the Inquisition, if you're interested, is a guy called Henry Kamen. Um, not that his works are without criticism. I mean, they certainly are, uh, have been the subject of a lot of historical debate. But Kamen and others, uh, you know, in the, in the more recent, like, 25 sort of era, like the last 25 years, have really revised um, our understanding of the Inquisition, which is to say that it was not um, nearly a sort of bloodthirsty or, you know, a, a sort of, you know, not trigger happy, but you, you get the expression. Like, 
kill people as was previously thought. Um, the, the rate of capital punishment, depending on the city or like the, the period of time you're talking about, was generally something like one to four uh, percent of all of those who were sort of guilty. Vast majority were were not punished um, very severely. And by the standards of the day, um, it was generally perceived to be preferable to be brought to trial for wrongdoing before the Inquisition than to um, a sort of secular civil, not secular, but to a civil court. Um, again, there's a lot of detail I would, would like to fill in, but I think it's worth noting, again, especially because it's the church history course and this is such a flashpoint in sort of the way people talk about church history. Well, what about the Inquisition? Well, if you read about the Inquisition, it was much more nuanced than, than the popular um, imagination would let on. Um, but in the aftermath of sort of Reformation and then Catholic and Counter-Reformation period, these tensions between Catholics and Protestants um, kind of lead inexorably toward conflict. And the conflict becomes armed conflict in a series of religious wars that unfold um, across across Europe, really, in the Holy Roman Empire, in, in France, and in, in, in most parts of Europe for various periods of time in the, the 16th and 17th century. There are wars being fought over religion, specifically over which type of Christianity is right. And it was the exhaustion in many ways of these from these wars of religion that led to a number of people seeking alternative explanations or alternative worldviews because it seemed like sort of the Christian approach had run aground um, and had resulted in, um, you know, endless conflict in, you know, the so-called Hundred Years' War in the Holy Roman Empire, off and on for, for decades, um, fighting over, uh, you know, being Catholic or Protestant. And so that really sets the stage for the Enlightenment, which was, you know, this sort of series of thinkers that, that started to, you know, view the world in a different way and one that did not start from sort of the shared premises of Christianity or, or the authority of the church. And, and the Enlightenment is really what sort of marks, I think, the inflection point uh, of, or the sort of the beginning of the modern era. Um, obviously, uh, these ideals impact the American Revolution, but it's really in the French Revolution that the Enlightenment is sort of um, influencing the sort of the thought and slogans, um, and, and it takes a, a deeply anti-clerical and anti-church turn, and it becomes a very bloody uh, revolution, the French Revolution, which you know again impacts the next hundred years of European history. Um, and so, you know, I'm afraid I can't go much beyond that, except to say that, you know, the Reformation and the response uh, of the church, you know, makes sense on their own terms. Um, but both sides kind of dig in. And that digging in leads to, to conflict, leads to religious warfare, 
with, with no real good way to resolve it, identified. And that sparks, that combined with, in fairness, the, the so-called scientific revolution, uh, which, which has an impact here too, um, sparks, as we understand the world and the way the world works around us even more fully, combined with this sort of other problem that now Christianity seems to have entered into this uh, unresolvable conflict within itself about which which version is right, and if you're if you're not in the right version, you know we're going to kill you, um, or at least try and conquer you. Um, you know that leads to a kind of turn towards other ways of conceiving the world, and and I think that um, you know it's, it's an important sort of consequence of of all of this, all of these developments. Um, we're at nine thirty one, and I I. Uh, feel bad that I've kept this over a few other times this semester. So I'm going to stop there and um, just in closing, I'll, I'll pause for any final questions or comments about anything I've just said. But, um, you know, before people start signing off, just want to say once again, um, thanks to all of you for, for being here, for, for participating. This was the first time I'd done it entirely online, like no in-person sessions. So, um, you know, and this is also unusually large for this course, to be honest, to have this many people. And I, I think, I hope, you know, it went well, but really thanks to all of you um, for your participation and attentiveness and for being here. So, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful. Uh, it's certainly been a hard semester for all of us with, with Father O'Reilly um, uh, and his really unfortunate passing. And then obviously for me, and, and so it's it's been difficult in many ways, but uh, everyone, again, you've you've been so gracious and flexible, and so I, I'm I'm tremendously thankful uh, you all for that. And yeah, if you, if you have any questions or even um, you know, just moving forward, it, you know, if something strikes you or you, you're you're thinking about church history or whatever, and and uh, you know, shoot me an email. I'd love to stay in touch. Um, and, and maybe somehow we'll, we'll uh, some, some of us will get to meet in person or, or someday at the seminary or, or who knows. But, um, you know, I just want to express one, one final time my, my gratitude and, and I hope, uh, you know, hope you gain something from the course. You're very welcome. This is awesome. Thank you. You're great. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Are you, now you, are you going to post the final tomorrow? That's exactly right. You. Okay. Yep. Tomorrow. I'll send out an email when it's posted. Um, you know, sometime during the day, won't be super late, and you'll have um, a week to do it. Okay. You might have two weeks worth of questions, but <laughs> see how that goes. Okay. <laughs> I'm always always happy to uh, to help or answer any questions you might have, whether it's you know in the context of this course or, or outside of it. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, I'd be I'd love to hear from you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thanks, everyone. Take good care. Thank All you. right, take care. Thank you. Thank you. One thing I was going to point out just wrong. Fuck yourself, you fucking asshole. Oops.